And right now, we are in the book of Numbers. And Numbers is a very interesting book. Now, you know, you start getting into it, you think it's really dry, but there's a lot of details in the book of Numbers that are important that you don't realize, you know, at that time. And so we're walking through some of those things. And today I would say this, for those of you who are visitors, those of you who may not be believers in Jesus Christ, this message is kind of for you, but it's mostly for believers in Christ. This is a a believer's message. And the reason why you'll, you'll understand as time goes on, but don't close your ears if you're not a believer, because there are things in there that'll be very beneficial for you guys to hear as well. The title of today's sermon is called, What Kind of Follower Are You? What kind of follower are you? One of the things that I tell youth who are trying to become student leaders, I tell them this statement, a good leader knows when to follow. A good leader knows when to follow. And usually for the youth, it's in the context as I'm training them up to to lead within youth ministry. You know where the biggest place where I see this at? It's in the games that we choose at youth ministry because everybody has their favorite games. I like this game. I don't like this game that we do at youth group. I like this that we do, and I don't like this that we do. So you start getting leaders coming in, and all of a sudden, they have their own opinions on all the different games that are out there in youth group and what we ought to do. We should do this. I didn't like that. And one of the first lessons I teach them is that your attitude means everything as it pertains to people who are coming into this place. And so you, as a leader within this youth group, have an impact on the way that you lead others coming into this place. And so if you're in here and you're just bad-mouthing the games, which are fun things to do and don't mean anything, it's not really the purpose why we're there. They help with the fellowship that we have together. But that's not the ultimate purpose. The ultimate purpose is to share Christ. You, being a sourpuss during the games or not participating in the games, has an effect throughout everything that we do within the youth group. Everything that you do. So my leaders have a charge, and their charge is this. You have to be enthusiastic about every game that we play, whether you like it or not. And I ask them a simple question. Can you tell the difference between the games that I like and the games that I don't like at youth group? And the truth is, you don't. Because I play all of them equally. And there are games that I hate at youth group. That surprises kids to even hear. Like, I don't like playing this game. Or I don't like playing this game. I could list off games, but I'm not going to do it. Because the whole idea is it's not about me being there. It's about glorifying God. And in order to glorify God, I want them to know this is a place where we're going to have an exceptional time in everything that we do. And my attitude reflects a lot of that. This past week, we saw a lot of attitude in numbers. For those of you who read numbers this week, raise your hand. 13 through 18, and it was like, dude, there was attitude everywhere this week, wasn't it? It was hard. It's hard reading some of these passages of Scripture. Man, we go through there, and it's like, dude, if attitude means everything, the Israelites did not get that memo. Okay? Because they have come with attitude. And they've come with a force on that attitude. And we're going to see how that attitude affects the type of followers they are and affects the congregation, the the people of Israel as a whole. Because their following 
And their leadership as they're following had a profound effect upon the people. And we saw that all this week. We're going to look at an extended passage today that I think is really a microcosm of everything that we saw during this week. And it's an extended passage, so we're going to take a little bit of time to be in there. So if you will, turn with me to Numbers chapter 13. We're going to start in verse 17. And we're going to read all the way through chapter 14 and verse 38. Because we want the full context of everything that's happened here. This is the exploring of the land of Canaan. And so they're going into this land that God has promised. And so he sends 12 spies. And these 12 spies are leaders. They're, they're clan leaders from one from each tribe of Israel to go out into the land, to spy out the land that God has wanted them to do. Listen very carefully to what Moses instructs them to do and what happens afterwards, starting in verse 17. When Moses sent them to explore Canaan, he said, go up through the Negev and on, on into the hill country. See what the land is like and whether the people who live there are strong or weak, few or many. What kind of land do they live in? Is it good or bad? What kind of towns do they live in? Are they unwalled or fortified? How is the soil? Is it fertile or poor? Are there trees in it or not? Do your best to bring back some of the fruit of the land. It was a season for the first ripe grapes. So they went up and explored the land from the desert of Zin as far as to Rehob, toward Labo Hamath. And they went up through the Negev and came to Hebron, where Ahiman, Shishai, and Talmai, the descendants of Anak, lived. Hebron had been built seven years before Zoan in Egypt. When they had reached the valley of Eshkol, they cut off a branch bearing a single cluster of grapes, and two of them carried it on a pole between them along with some of the pomegranates and figs. That place was called the Valley of Eshbel because of the cluster of grapes the Israelites cut off there. And at the end of 40 days, they returned from exploring the land. And they came back to Moses and Aaron and the whole Israelite community at Kadesh in the desert of Paran. There they reported to them and to the whole assembly and showed them the fruit of the land. And they gave Moses this account. We went into the land to which you sent us, and it does flow with milk and honey. Here is its fruit. But the people who live there are powerful, and the cities are fortified and very large. And we even saw descendants of Anak there. The Amalekites live there in the Negev. The Hittites, the Jebusites, the Amorites live in the hill country, and the Canaanites Live near the sea along the Jordan. Then Caleb silenced the people before, the, before Moses and said, We should go up and take possession of the land, for we can certainly do it. But the men who had gone up with him said, we can't, we can't attack those people. They're stronger than we are. And they spread among the Israelites a bad report about the land that they had explored. They said, the land we explored devours those who are living in it. All the people we saw there are of great size. We saw the Nephilim there. The descendants of the Anak come from the Nephilim. We seem like grasshoppers in our own eyes, and we looked the same to them. And that night, all the people of the community raised their voices and wept aloud. All the Israelites grumbled against Moses and Aaron, and the whole assembly said to them, If only we had died in Egypt or in this desert. Why is the Lord bringing us to this land only to let us fall by the sword? Our wives and children will be taken as plunder. Wouldn't it be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to each other, We should choose a leader and go back to Egypt. 
And Moses and Aaron fell face down in front of the whole Israelite assembly gathered there. Joshua, son of Nun, and Caleb, son of Jethunah, who were among those who had explored the land, tore their clothes. And they said to the entire Israelite assembly, the land we passed through and explored is exceedingly good. If the Lord is pleased with us, he will lead us into that land, a land flowing with milk and honey, and he will give it to us. Only do not rebel against the Lord. And do not be afraid of the people of the land, because we will swallow them up. Their protection is gone. But the Lord is with us. Do not be afraid of them. But the whole assembly talked about stoning them. Then the glory of the Lord appeared at the tent of meeting to all the Israelites. And the Lord said to Moses, how long will these people treat me with contempt? How long will they refuse to believe in me despite all of the miraculous signs I have performed among them? I will strike them down with a plague and destroy them. But I will make you into a nation greater and stronger than they. And Moses said to the Lord, Then the Egyptians will hear about it. By your power, you brought these people up from among them. And they will tell the inhabitants of this land about it. They've already heard that you, O Lord, are with these people. And that you, O Lord, have been seen face to face. And that your cloud stays over them. And that you go before them in a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. If you put these people to death all at one time, the nations who have heard this report about you will say, The Lord was not able to bring these people into the land he promised them on oath. So he slaughtered them in the desert. Now may the Lord's strength be displayed just as you have declared. The Lord is slow to anger, abounding in love and forgiving sin and rebellion. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children for the sins of the fathers to the third and fourth generation. In accordance with your great love, forgive the sin of these people just as you have pardoned them from the time that they left Egypt until now. The Lord replied, I have forgiven them as you have asked. Nevertheless, as surely as I live, and as surely as the glory of the Lord fills the whole earth, not one of these men who saw my glory and the miraculous signs that I performed in Egypt and in the desert, but who disobeyed me and tested me ten times, not one of them will ever see the land I promised on oath to their forefathers. No one who has treated me with contempt will ever see it. But because my servant Caleb has a different spirit and follows me wholeheartedly, I will bring him into the land he went to. And his descendants will inherit it. Since the Amalekites and the Canaanites are living in the valleys, turn back tomorrow and set out toward the desert along the route of the Red Sea. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, How long will this wicked community grumble against me? I have heard the complaints of these grumbling Israelites, so tell them, As surely as I live, declares the Lord, I will do to you the very things that I heard you say. In this desert, your bodies will fall. Every one of you, 20 years old or more, who was counted in the census and who has grumbled against me. Not one of you will enter the land I swore with uplifted hand to make your home, except Caleb, son of Jephthunah, and Joshua, son of Nun. As for your children... That you said would be taken as plunder. I will bring them in to enjoy the land that you have rejected. But you, your bodies will fall in this desert. Your children will be shepherds here for 40 years. Suffering for your unfaithfulness until the last of your bodies lies in the desert. For 40 years, one year for each of the 40 days you explored in the land. You will suffer for your sins and know what it is like to have me against you. I, the Lord, have spoken, and I will certainly do these things to the whole wicked community which has been banded together against me. They will meet their end in this desert. Here they will die. So the men Moses had sent to explore the land who returned 
and made the whole community grumble against him by spreading a bad report about it. These men responsible for spreading the bad report about the land were struck down and died of a plague before the Lord. And of the men who went up to explore the land, only Joshua, son of Nun, and Caleb, son of Jethuna, survived. Wow. What an account. What, what an account of seeing God's reaction to a people that he entrusted to spy out this land. Moses grabs 12 leaders to go into the land of Canaan, this land of promise that God has, has, has talked to them about and said, go check out the land, everything about the land. Here's what I want you to do. And he gives a list. Here's the list of questions that I want you to answer. Do you know what he didn't ask those leaders to do? Military strategy. Did you notice that none of that was military strategy? None of that, those questions from Moses had anything to do with the military. Had nothing to do with how are we going to attack them, what's going to go on, what's our next move. He just simply said, go to the land, check out the land, find out about fortified cities, find out about the land, the people, are there trees there, is it good fruit, is the land flowing with milk and honey, and come back and report what you have found. They did a little bit more than what they were told. They may have thought that they were doing a good thing for the people too, right? I'm going to lead the people in this way. Well, I I guess we saw giants in the land. Oh my goodness, the Nephilim are there. The, The descendants of the Nephilim are there. We're like grasshoppers in their eyes. They need to know this information. It's so much. We're, we're going to go and tell everybody these things. Moses said, come back. And they came back with the food and the fruit. And, and they're like, yes, the land is definitely flowing with milk and honey, but it's not for us. I don't remember that being part of their charge. Do you? And remember, they're appointed as spies because they were leaders of the clans of the people of Israel in each of those clans. One from each tribe of Israel that was considered a leader. But their leadership had gone astray, hadn't it? And to the point that they came in and they turned the whole community against Moses and Aaron to the point that they were ready to stone them. That's kind of crazy. And it's the power of what we can do as followers, right? A good leader knows when to follow, but they weren't following as leaders should. They had forgotten what they had been charged with, and they had come back trying to do more. As a matter of fact, uh, you know, I've, I've been privileged, you know, El Porvenir with the women's retreat coming up, I've been privileged for about 10 years to lead camps as dean or co-dean up there at um, El Porvenir. And the dean's job is to kind of run everything that happens in the camp, the whole direction. You get the speakers, you get everybody who's there. You're running everything that's happening up there. I've done that for a decade. And other people have done it from other churches who are a lot bigger than our church is. The best helpers are the leaders who know how to follow. And the worst helpers are the leaders who don't. Every single time. 
the best helpers are the leaders who know how to follow. In other words, they realize it's not their camp to lead. They're in a specific role. This is what they're supposed to be doing. And what they can do can encourage the, the hopeful result of the camp, which is have everything running smoothly so that the message of Christ goes out undisturbed, right? And can be returned back and everything kind of runs as it should. The worst ones are the ones like, man, I do this so differently. So you know what? We're going to do it differently. You know what? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to, at every moment in time, question the leadership and, and the dean and the, and the co-dean and the people who are in charge of this. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go up there and I'm going to give my suggestions to help them along the way. And every single time, you know what it causes? Dissension. Division. Gets our eyes off the focus. And, and see, that's exactly what's happening here. See, ultimately, what are we seeing? We have seen the people of Israel right here in this moment in time. They have forgotten their calling and their purpose. They have gone out into the land and they've come back with their own report further than what they were asked to do. They've come out with their own leadership further than what they were asked to do by Moses. Commissioned by God to do so. And they've caused dissension to rise up within the community. Let's go back to Exodus chapter 3 because I want you to see the calling of Moses all the way back to his original calling at the burning bush when God calls Moses to lead the people of Israel. Exodus chapter 3. Starting in verse 7. And the Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave traders. I am concerned about their suffering, so I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land. A land flowing with milk and honey. The home of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me, and I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now go. I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. Do you notice? This is God speaking to Moses. This is what he's called to do. He's called to be the leader that he's chosen. Correct? He is called to lead them into a land flowing with milk and honey. And would you notice many of those same peoples were the very ones that they went and spied out the land? This is who we saw. Like, it's like God knew, right? Who was in the land. Pretty amazing, right? This is God fulfilling his purpose and his promise. As a matter of fact, it's a purpose and the promise that the people of Israel also agreed to. If you turn to Exodus chapter 19, verses 3 through 8. And it says, Then Moses went up to God, and the Lord called him from the mountain and said, This is what you're to say to the house of Jacob, and what you're to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt, how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. And now if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations, you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. 
So Moses went back and summoned the elders of the people and set before them all the words the Lord had commanded him to speak. And the people all responded together, we will do everything the Lord has said. So Moses brought their answer back to the Lord. You see, this wasn't coercion. This was God saying, I have delivered you as I have promised, and I am going to make you a nation of priests before me if you will obey all that I've commanded you. And what did the people say? Yes, we will. And here we are, one year, and about three months later. And guess what? They ain't living up to that promise very well, are they? All that God commanded them to do, I want you to spy out the land. No, we need a new leader so that we can drag ourselves back down to Egypt again. Let's stone Moses and Aaron because we don't like the direction that this is going. We've plotted out the land and we didn't like what we see. Oh, we like the land, but man, those people who are there. And it gets God pretty pretty angry. Matter of fact, so angry that he's willing to start over again just with Moses. And you know what Moses does in this intercessory prayer? Oh, it's a beautiful thing. He appeals back to God's promise and oath to the people. He he goes back to his calling. He goes back to the purpose for which God called them up to not remind God like God needed a reminder. But that God is testing him right now and Moses stands in intercessory prayer for all the people of Israel because they're all being knuckleheads right now. And the ones who are wanting to stone him and Aaron and everybody else who's being faithful to God, he's praying for them because he knows what God is thinking about doing. That's what we read in verses 13 through 19. Of chapter 14, just to remind you real quick, but listen to it. Listen to how much of this is a reminder, is, is an interceding from, to God concerning the promises that he's made to the people of Israel. Moses said to the Lord, then the Egyptians will hear about it. And by your power they brought these people up from among them. And they will tell the inhabitants of this land about it. They've already heard that you, O Lord, are with these people. And that you, O Lord, have been seen face to face, that your cloud stays over them, that you go before them in a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. If you put these people to death all at one time, the nations who have heard this report about you will say the Lord was not able to bring these people into the land that he's promised them on oath. So he slaughtered them in the desert. Now may the Lord's strength be displayed just as you have declared the Lord is slow to anger abounding in love, forgiving the sin and rebellion, yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes, uh, he punishes the children for the sin of the fathers to the four, third and fourth generations. In accordance with your great love, forgive the sin of these people just as you have pardoned them from the time they left Egypt until now. Do you see how much of that is about the promises of God? Is about the commands of God that he's put forth before the people of Israel that they said, we will obey those things. He is standing in the gap for the people of Israel to bring them back, that they can all be on the same page together. And, of course, we do see the punishment. And God relents, and he forgives them their sin, and he says, but they're going to wander in the desert for 40 years. They could have gone straight to Canaan. They could have gone straight to the land of promise. Wouldn't that be great? Now, nope. 
you guys are going to fall and your children that you were worried about, they're going to inherit the land. That's what's going to happen. And it all happens because they were a people who forgot their calling and their purpose. That's what happened in that passage. And you know what? We're the same way. Man, I hate to say it, we really are. What's our commission? We have the Great Commission, Matthew 28, 18 through 20. And Jesus said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely I am with you always, even until the very end of the age. That is our commission. That is our calling. That is our purpose as believers in Christ. God, as we get sidetracked, some to make disciples, to go off and tell others about Jesus. And we get sidetracked so easily from that commission, don't we? Acts chapter 4, verse 12, where Peter is talking. He says, salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. The name of Jesus, the name above all names. Do you guys agree? Amen? And we're supposed to be telling others. And there's a problem with that because we become grumblers within our own congregations. It's a thing that happens in every congregation. It's not just ours. I'm not calling anybody out. You know why? Because it happens everywhere. I've done it, you've done it, everybody's done it. We get our eyes off of our commission and our calling and what we're supposed to be doing as followers of Jesus Christ. And we forget, and I think part of the reason that that happens is when we start sharing the gospel of Christ, we forget that there's not just one reaction that's going to happen with the gospel of Jesus Christ. There's two. Paul makes it very clear, and and I think sometimes we internalize that and then we begin to foist those standards every place else. So let me explain real quick. So let's look at 2 Corinthians chapter 2. Starting in verse 14 through 16. This is what it says. But thanks be to God who always leads us in triumphal procession in Christ. And through us spreads everywhere the fragrance of the knowledge of him. For we are to God the aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and those who are perishing. To the one we're the smell of death. And to the other the fragrance of life and who is equal to such a task. We don't like thinking of ourselves as having an aroma of death, do we? You guys know what dead things smell like? Drive by the road, you know, when you drive by the road and skunk has been killed the night before, you have the aroma of death wafting into your car. Just for a few moments, you're like... (laughs) And what do you want to do? You want to get away from that area, right? The aroma of death is not pretty. We're not talking a barbecue. We're talking about dead, decaying, grossness. Okay? It's putrid. It's something that you don't want to be around. But notice, Paul uses these words through the Holy Spirit to say that that's what we are when we deliver the gospel of Christ to those who are perishing. And we don't want to hear that. And if you've ever shared Christ with other people, 
Guess what happens? You get one of two reactions. Well, you might get one of three reactions. One is indifference. But the other two is this. Either they're so glad that you shared. Or they don't want to really talk about it anymore. And you have good news. And see, the problem is, I think what happens with us as believers in Christ that we have eternal, internalized uh, with ourselves is that when we have had a bad experience with somebody else because they don't want to hear Jesus, we assume we did something wrong. So we do. Think about it. I shared with them. They got so mad at me. I thought I shared nicely. I shared urgently. I shared with this, this message, and maybe I came on a little strong, but they really hated me for it. I was trying to be as nice as I could. And guess what? So maybe I did this wrong. And we start thinking in our heads, well, if I share in this way, this is the wrong way to share about Jesus Christ. And therefore, if I see a teacher doing that, a pastor doing that, somebody else doing that in the pulpit, well, I'm, I'm going to have issues with them sharing in this way. Because if they share in this way, they might offend somebody. And if they offend somebody, then they may not come to Jesus Christ. And I'm telling you, the gospel of Jesus Christ, by its very nature, is offensive. Especially to those who are perishing. Who want nothing to do with Jesus. And want you to shut up no matter how nice you say it. Or how harsh it comes off. See, for the believer, the point is sharing the gospel faithfully. And some are going to take it harshly. And sometimes the messages are going to come out passionately. And we're going to be worried about how somebody else takes it. But the end goal is this. They need Jesus. And we've internalized the way a message is shared rather than the truthfulness of the message shared. And it's important for you and me to recognize that the truthfulness of what is being shared is what we're committed to as believers in Christ. Because if you look throughout the Gospels, there's all different types of way that Jesus is shared. Read Matthew 23. Woe to you, Pharisees, teachers of the law, hypocrites. For you search the world to make a convert for yourself. And when you do, you make them twice the son of hell as yourselves. Ooh, that's an outreach message for the world, isn't it? (laughs) But we pretend that that doesn't exist. We pretend that Jesus never said a harsh word to anybody. That he wanted to come to him and have life. Read the gospel, seriously. Read the gospels, read the confrontations. Ask yourself, did he want every man to come to him? He did. And if he did, and those are the messages that are there, are we going to hear those messages in our churches and in other places? If we are faithful to God, yes, we will. Should it deter us from inviting people because they might hear a harsh message? I can't tell you how many people I've heard, and I'm not just talking about here, I'm talking about any place, who've worried more about tone than the gospel of Jesus Christ. That passage that I just talked about, Acts chapter 4, 
We're going to take a little closer deep dive look just for a few seconds on it because we don't look at the context very often. So go back to Acts chapter 4. Uh, Peter and John are in jail. They, they find themselves in jail a lot because they're preaching the gospel of Christ. They're in jail this time because they've healed a man who had been crippled for a long time. And they knew it, so they arrested them. And that passage that we talked about with salvation comes by no other name. This is exactly what Peter said. The context of it actually starts in verse 8. It says, then, Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers and elders of the people, if we're being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a cripple and are asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. He is the stone that you builders rejected, which has become this capstone. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. You get what Peter said right there? Peter said, you want to know? You want to know how this man was healed? Why he stands whole today is because of Jesus of Nazareth. He could have stopped right there. Ooh, praise God for Jesus of Nazareth, whom you crucified. See, he's talking to the same people who condemned Jesus to death. He could have just left that out, right? If we were in a seeker-sensitive culture, we might have just left out that fact because we just want them to come to Jesus. But to come to Jesus is to come to the end of oneself, That you crucified. God raised him from the dead. That hope is in him. Salvation is preached in no other name. And then he quotes the scripture. Psalm 118. The stone. Now now the quote actually says the stone the builders rejected. Now it's interesting. They personalized it. The stone you builders rejected has become the capstone, has become the cornerstone. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. Man, it had been so easy if Peter just said the nice thing, right? Why do you have to make it so hard, Peter? Because he wants them to be saved. And he has to share the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ, even if it offends. Because the fragrance of the aroma of the gospel of Christ is a pleasing aroma. It's life-giving to those who are being saved. It is death to those who are perishing. And so how did they react? Verse 18, same, same portion of scripture. And they called them again in and commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, judge for yourselves whether it's right in God's sight to obey you rather than God. For we cannot help speaking what we have seen and heard. And after further threats, they let them go. They could not decide how to punish them because all the people were praising God for what had happened. For the man who was miraculously healed was over 40 years old. Did you hear how they responded? They give them the gospel of Jesus Christ where they can have life and salvation is given in no other name. And they said, stop speaking and teaching in that name. I don't want to hear it anymore. 
Because preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ is the aroma of death to those who are perishing. And will always be. No matter how nice or how forceful you share it. See, our our commission, our calling, our purpose as believers in Christ is to make disciples. Nothing else. That's our commission. That's your commission in Jesus Christ to make disciples. How are we going to do that? We're going to do that together, all going in that same direction. But you know what? When we do all these things and we start worrying about little things, well, I wonder how Jeremy's going to come off this week. Trust me, I've heard that criticism. I have. I know how passionate I am when it comes to the gospel of Jesus Christ because there's no other way by which people can be saved. And my passion can be taken for anger. I get it. I understand. But it doesn't change the commission. So we don't invite somebody because they might hear a harsh word from the pulpit. Come have lunch with me. Sit down and get to know me. Those of you who have realize I mean what I say up here. But man, I can have a lot of fun with you guys too. What kind of followers are we going to be? Because we've got a calling and we have a purpose and we have a commission and there's a lost and dying world out there in need of Jesus Christ and they don't need our excuses of stupidness. I'm sorry, I'm going to be a little mean right now. Of stupidness. It's stupid. Just like the people of of Israel going against Moses and Aaron at that moment because they're being dumb. Had they not seen all the great things that God had done? And so now they're going to go against Moses and they're going to go against Aaron and they're going to go against everybody else. And now they've got to walk in the desert for 40 years. And they're going to die in the desert. And God wanted to bring them to the promised land right away. Guys, there are people that you know who need Jesus. And they need to be in a place where they're going to hear about Jesus, whether it's at your dinner table or at this church or at our football function or wherever we're going to be sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ because our commission is to make disciples of God. That's our calling. And nothing else matters so long as the ministry of Christ is being faithfully administered up here and in the classrooms and in our life groups and among our relationships. That's what we look for. Faithfulness. Not tone. Because God can work through any tone. I've had people talk about my sermons. I've heard the same sermon offend. I've heard the same sermon say, man, God used you in such a mighty way. It's about making disciples, guys. It's about sharing the good news of Jesus Christ to the world around us. It's remembering that that's why this church, and hopefully every Bible-believing church exists, that we can go out there and fulfill God's great commission and not be distracted along the way by all this minutia that Satan wants to do for every one of us, right? To get us off of this. God wants to do a great thing here. I think there's a lot of great plans we have in the works. 
I think there's a lot of great things that are yet to be done. And most importantly, I pray that there are many souls that we are looking forward to seeing saved in Christ. But that's our calling. That's our mission. Nothing else. Nothing else. Let's make sure we're walking together in that. We don't get distracted along the way so we can see the glory of God. The Israelites did when they were obedient. I'm sure we will too. Just stand.